Well, good afternoon. I'm going to encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 87. And I looked for a pew Bible and found none. I will be reading from the ESV. Is that what you all mostly have? Yes, great. And before I read the passage of Scripture, by way of introduction to not just Psalm 87, but the Bible, I'd like you to think about three important words that begin with the letter P. Place, people, presence. These three words and themes are central to the storyline of the Bible. What we'll find in Psalm 87 is God choosing and establishing a place where His people will experience His presence. That's a great summary, really, of Psalm 87, as we'll see from verse 1 to verse 7. But before we read the passage and understand how this text contributes to this broader story of the Bible and why it it pops in certain ways, is you first need to start in the first place with the first people where they were with God's presence. And that's the first few pages of Genesis, where God had established that the place where they would dwell was a garden. And this garden had a river streaming through the garden, branching into four major rivers that would have given life to the rest of the world around it. And the people dwelled with God in His holy presence. So the story becomes surprising that when we read Psalm 87, we find ourselves not in a garden, but in a city. And not with the people that you would think that God would choose or would come out of this city. And so that's what I mean by People, place, presence are the three basic concepts that we're going to work through in Psalm 87. And my hope and prayer for us is that if you can make sense of Psalm 87, you're going to be able to really grasp your hands on really the whole Bible, what your purpose in life is as an individual, the meaning of meaningful membership here at New Covenant Baptist Church. And if that's not enough for one sermon, I don't know what else is. So let's dive in. Follow along as I read Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. 
And that'll end our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer for us is that he will write this truth on our hearts. God loves the place where all the peoples of the earth can receive the spring of his eternal presence. That's the truth. That's in one sentence what I believe Psalm 87 is communicating. God has chosen in his electing love a place. And this place would be the fountainhead where all the peoples of the earth will receive the spring of his eternal presence. So let's work through this psalm in that way. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to unpack the first statement that I just made. God loves the place. And then in verses 3 to 6, we're going to notice that God loves a place where the peoples of all the earth, and then in verse 7, can receive the spring of His eternal presence. First, God has chosen a place. What's the place? It's a small mountain in comparison to the mighty mountains in the world or even in the Middle East where it now stands. God chose a place that is the city that he founded, and he loves the gates of Zion more than all of the tabernacles, literally, if you were to translate dwelling in its most strict sense. God loves the gates of Zion. I think this is just a metonymy, a a specific aspect of the city, the gates, as reference to the entire city. So, God loves the city that is on the mountain that we call Zion, and this is Jerusalem, more than any other place, all over Jacob, that is Israel, all over the land of Israel. We, we could have chosen from Shiloh or Gilgal or Bethel, places where worship happened, altars were built, but no, God has chosen this place to be the place where all the peoples of the earth can receive the spring of God's eternal presence. So, should we meditate on the smallness of this mountain? Yes, we should. It makes sense in the first story of the Bible that God chose a place, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14 say that is the holy mountain of God where God placed man in a garden. In other words, Eden is a place filled with mountains. The holy mountain of God was the original starting place for God and man to dwell together on a mountain with a stream running through it. There's a lot of correspondence then to this very first story and our passage of Scripture here in Psalm 87. But what makes Zion holy, special, or stick out? It's not so big. The Mount of Olives where Jesus sat with his disciples right before he was crucified, it stands higher than the Mount of Zion. So it's not because of how big and strong it is. It's not because of its prominence in history. It's because God chose it. Because that's the place that he sovereignly, graciously chose. Now this illustration that I'm about to give lands a lot better in downtown Chicago. But we're here in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and it just doesn't quite fit. I tried to make my best 
transition, but bear with me. Downtown Chicago is known for having some of these tall skyscrapers, and for quite a while, the Sears Tower, now known as the Willis Tower, was one of the tallest buildings in the world and in North America. And so, today, people come and take architectural tours and, and go through the city looking at its mighty mountain-like buildings. And in downtown Chicago, to say that God chose a place like Mount Zion in light of all of the other mountains would be like saying that God chose Colbertson Hall at the Moody Bible Institute as His special dwelling. Now, like I said, this lands a lot better when you're in Chicago and you're filled with a church with a whole bunch of members from Moody Bible Institute, but I'll explain. The Willis Tower, St. Regis, the Aeon Center, Trump Tower, or the John Hancock, all five of these large buildings are over a thousand feet high. The clouds intersect with these tall buildings, and they're all over a hundred stories. Colbertson Hall, on the other hand, as lovely as it is, stands at a mere 19 stories tall, and it is the boys' dormitory of the Moody Bible Institute, and it smells like boys. I have the privilege of going there every week and discipling young men from our church. And if you can just picture what I'm getting at, of all of the buildings in the vast city line of Chicago, to choose a modest smelly, run-down, needs-renovated dormitory would be a strange decision, wouldn't it? That's what God is doing when He communicates in Psalm 87, I have established Zion to be the place where all the peoples of the earth will find the life-giving, eternal presence of God. I'm choosing a hill it's probably better to even understand this. It's a, it's a big hill. It is a hill, and there are valleys on other sides. But it's no monstrosity. It's, it's nothing to marvel at just in its sheer size or presence. God chose Mount Zion for the same reason that He chooses you, for the same reason that He loves you. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, God's chosen people are not greater in number than all of the other people. He set His love on the people of Israel, for in fact, they were of the fewest of all the peoples and tribes and nations. It is only because of God's love for Israel that He loved them. Have you all ever stopped and pondered the magnificence of Deuteronomy chapter 7. God loves this place of His dwelling. Why this place? And the answer is because He loves it. He loves it because He loves it? Exactly. God loves Mount Zion not because of how beautiful or great or grand it is, he loves it because He has chosen to put His presence there. He has chosen to make His plans run through there. Brothers in the room, if you have the privilege of being married or if you're a single man and you might one day be married, I'm going to give you a free tip right now. If your wife asks you, why do you love me? 
And all you list are things that will change in a matter of days, weeks, months, or years. Then she will have such insecurity about your love and affection. Well, it's because you weigh a certain amount. It's because of your beautiful, long, colorful hair. It's because of the size that you are. If you say any of those things, and those might fluctuate from year to year, decade to decade, then she might wonder, well, I don't weigh the same. I don't look the same. My hair fell out. It changed colors. Do you not love me anymore? Do you get the point? If God's affection and love toward us is dependent upon how great our qualities in us are, well then, first of all, what does He have in us that is so worthy of love and affection as sinners who have rebelled against a holy God? And secondly, what happens when you and I change? Will God's love change because you failed last night in sin again? Or do you know that God's love is eternal, timeless, sovereign? His love for you is because He loves you in the same way that He loves the city where His dwelling place is, more than all of the dwelling places of Jacob. It is a small mountain in comparison, and it is a city that God has chosen to set His love upon. And for many of us, that may seem normal living in the 21st century, but again, start with the basic storyline of the Bible. The place that God originally chose was a garden. The first city that was built was by Cain, a murderer, out of rebellion of God's protection to create his own protection in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, to make a name for him and his family. The second city that was built was by Nimrod, the man who helped start Nineveh and all of these empires of the ancient world. That city we call Babel. Read about that in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. If you're reading the first 11 chapters of the Bible and you're asking what's the Bible's commentary on cities, it would be bad. Cities are terrible places where people who have rejected God's holy presence, who have sinned against Him, and have multiplied iniquity, that's what cities are. So it is actually surprising that God's plan of salvation and His love and affection wouldn't just be on a small hill in the Middle East, but that it would be on a city. A city is a place full of people, and people who have been multiplying sin and rebellion against God. Read Isaiah chapter 2 and 3 in your quiet time tomorrow or later on this evening and see that Jerusalem itself became just like all the other cities and was worthy of judgment. There's a surprise in this text that God would so love even Mount Zion and Jerusalem. Don't take that for granted. Fast forward the story from Genesis chapter 11, and the next most prominent, biggest city is Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's referenced more than almost any other city in the Bible. And it's filled with just horrible idolatry, rebellion, and sin. The takeaway then, not only to understand the very basics of God's plan and His purpose through His love, His sovereign electing love, but the takeaway is that God takes what humans began to build 
Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Cities. And instead of doing away with them, he incorporates human sin and rebellion in a strange, mysterious way into his plan of salvation that he can now say, I love this city. Brothers and sisters, there is no sin that you can commit that will forever wreck your relationship with God or God's plan for you, this church, the world. God is in the business of redeeming and restoring the materials He has to work with, which is sinners. And I think you should take great comfort and hope in realizing that God says in Psalm 87 that I will take a thing that man has built in the storyline of the Bible, and I will love it, and I will choose to establish this place as the fulcrum, the center point, the epicenter where all the peoples of the earth can experience my eternal presence. So remember, point one is that God has chosen a place. And what's surprising is its insignificance, its size, and that it's a city. Second point, God loves a place where all the peoples of the earth Let's just pause on that idea. All peoples of the earth. This is the heart of this psalm, and it's the reason I came to preach it to you today. We've been working through book three of the psalms, so I, I preached this a few weeks ago at Embassy Church. I was thinking about how beautiful verses three to six are. So let's read them again, and let me just hopefully clarify for us why what will on the surface seem like, okay, interesting psalm to, wow, Psalm 87, it's got some game, it's strong, it's a really good psalm. Starting in verse 3, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon, behold Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her, for the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Bookended by these Selahs, we have a statement that glorious things will be spoken about the city of God. What things? That its citizens will be recorded and registered from various nations. Rahab is not Rahab the prostitute. It is a nickname, a derogatory nickname of Egypt because of an ancient story about Rahab, this sea dragon that epitomized the waters of chaos and evil. And so throughout the Old Testament, you can read in Isaiah and various places, Egypt is sometimes seen synonymous with this name Rahab. So first, if you just follow the logic here, with that little explanation, glorious things will be spoken about God's city. Okay, what things? That those who know me are from Egypt and Babylon. Already, verse four, among those who, and this is the very important Hebrew word, yada, those who know me intimately, personally, covenantally, 
Know as in like I know my wife after over 20 years of being in a dating and marriage relationship. We know each other. And so, so much more. Yada, those who know me, those who believe in me, those who trust me, I mention, are going to come from Egypt and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Cush. And that's the moment some of you should be going, ha, that's incredible. Especially if you're reading the Bible's story from beginning to this point, and realizing that all of these nations are large, powerful, armed cities of man. They're known for their military might. They're known for their their power and their prestige. Egypt enslaved these people. The Philistines, that's where Goliath came from. The big, strong Goliath and the army of Philistia. Tyre to the north, Cush to the south, Other people actually think they're just working around the circle and saying every which way you could imagine, north, south, east, west, every nation you could imagine, even those that would be the most sneered enemies of the Israel people, they will be born in the city of God. Maybe it's not landing. Think of it like this. What if in the 1930s and 1940s someone said, Inside of Munich, Germany, there are now hundreds and thousands of Jews, ethnic Jews, that are flooding all over Europe into Munich and being born there and being given full privileges of citizenship during the Nazi regime. Would any of you think, that's incredibly strange? That's Psalm 87. Imagine someone telling you today that Palestinians who have full total allegiance to the Hamas regime are becoming counted as full participating citizens in Israel today. Would that flip the script a little bit? Would that make you be surprised? Imagine saying that an Algerian Sunni Muslim is being born in the Shiite country like Iran, and the list could go on. People are being born into God's city, and these people historically have been opposed to God, enemies of God. This is the gospel. This is about covenant membership. This is about regeneration. This is about transformation of somebody who's switching allegiances and now bowing down in full worship to the sovereign God in Jerusalem. And before we think too specific about a certain location on the physical planet right now, Just know that the one, I think, clearest reference of Psalm 87 in the New Testament is in an allegorical context, Genesis chapter 4. And in that section of Paul's argument, he quotes Psalm 87 in the Septuagint, so that might take some work, and I could explain that later for any of you that would like to ask questions, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother 
For it is written, and then he jumps from Psalm 87 about she, Jerusalem, being our mother from above to Isaiah. Chapter 54, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. For those of you that are familiar with Isaiah, right after the suffering of Isaiah 53, this servant one who bears the woes of God's right and just judgment, there will be rejoicing because a woman, and this is metaphorically speaking, a nation who has borne no children, a barren woman, desolate for years and years, never able to go into labor. They will rejoice and break forth with crying out loud because the children of the desolate will be way more than the one who has a husband. Three pointed applications as it relates to this second point. Our message as Christians, your mission as a church, and covenant membership at New Covenant Baptist Church should flow out of what we've seen in points one and two so far. Your message, the gospel, in fact, it's on the bulletin. It's your slogan, proclaiming Christ's promises to make disciples of all nations. That's Psalm 87. It's another way of saying the same thing. The message of Psalm 87 is that God has chosen a place on the earth, and that place will be the source of the fountainhead of the spring of eternal life that every nation, every nation you could imagine, the worst people that you could think of on the earth, even those people can receive new life in Jesus Christ. There will be people being born again, counted as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, the city of God from above, not here on the earth. So it doesn't matter, you in the seat right now, what place you were born into, what family you originated from. Your citizenship can be in the heavenly city of God, transcending all earthly and biological citizenship, all parental problems that you have inherited, all trauma and abuse, all of it can be changed through repentance of sin and faith and trust in this God. This is what 1 Corinthians 1 says when talking about the wisdom of the world versus the foolishness of the cross and how the foolishness of God is so much wiser than the wisdom of this world. And as reflecting on the cross, we preach Christ and Him crucified, which is a stumbling block to all of the rest of the world, whether Jew or Gentile. Paul says this important word, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It doesn't matter by worldly standards, the power, the beauty, the wealth of noble birth, God chose to reveal His plan of salvation through the cross. The message of the cross is that first point. God chooses the things that you would think, no, that's not strong enough. It's not wealthy enough. 
it's not beautiful enough, that's the city of man. God's building a different kind of city. And its message, its theme, its banner over the city is weak, poor, ugly, foolish, at least in the eyes of the world. The way to build that city then, if that's our message, God has chosen a cross, the sufferings of Christ, to be the source of bringing to faith all the nations of the earth, even pagan enemy nations. Well, secondly, if that's the message, do you all know what your mission is? Proclaim Christ's promises by making disciples to all the nations. The mission of my church at Embassy is to glorify Christ by making disciples of all nations. It's not just because James and I are good friends. That's just the message and the mission. We don't have to create a new cool slogan. Jesus gave us one. And therefore, every church's mission, if they're a faithful church, is to make disciples of all nations, fulfilling God's plan that through the family of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's choice of a certain place is not to be inclusive and exclusive. God's choice is to choose a place and a people so that he can, through that place and people, include all of the peoples of the earth. Do you, do you realize that when God chose Abraham, it was so that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed? When God chose Zion, it wasn't because, oh, I like Zion more than I like the mountains over in Ararat or, or Mount Everest. I chose this place because it would be through this place and through these people that I will bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth. A great illustration of this in the Bible, by the way, in terms of the mission of God, is the story of Jonah, the prophet who, when told, go to Nineveh, one of these cities that would easily be in the list, Philistia, Tyre, Cush, Nineveh, the Assyrian superpower. A three days journey it would take for him to walk through all of the villages and towns. Jonah said no. Jonah said no precisely because he knew that God's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love character would be revealed through the preaching of Jonah. In other words, Jonah is not about a big fish, and a fun story to tell your children. It's one of the most devastating critiques of prejudice, racism, and ethnocentrism in all of the Bible. A man named Jonah, representing the entire nation of Israel, is asked, go preach to an enemy nation across the town. He goes the exact opposite direction. God brings him back to the very original purpose of preaching to Nineveh. And through five words in the original language, the whole city and cows included fall down on their faces in repentance. And this is what Jonah 3:10 and following says, when God saw their repentance, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But this 
action of God displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I left and made haste to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that you like to relent from disasters. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it would be better for me to die than to live. If this is what God's like, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't even want to live. That's what Jonah's saying. That's the part of the story that I don't think gets included in the children's books. But it's actually the whole point of Jonah in the first place. It's like a mirror being put up to your soul and shining in very brightly. Do you only love the fact that God has saved you, or can you pray for and love your enemies as Jesus commanded you? Do you realize that Psalm 87 is actually surrounded by these deep laments of the sons of Korah? But here, tucked in right the middle of this collection of sons of Korah psalms, is a promise, a statement, a glorious celebration that God is going to save the very worst humans and criminals on the earth, especially in the eyes of a faithful Jew or Israelite. I think the implications of this are massive. You all are about to vote on your budget, I hear, in the announcements. Would it be right and fitting and good for year after year as the Lord provides for you to be giving generously of those tithes and offerings for the sake of the spread of the gospel throughout the nations? I think so. I don't know what your budget looks like. I don't know what you'll be voting on, but I'm encouraging you as a church that as the Lord provides, give and send to the work and the spread of the gospel. Just before I got up here, we had a pastoral prayer, and we're praying for the spread of the gospel around the world. Brothers and sisters, keep this practice up. On a weekly gathering, it should be just so normal and fitting that we would pray for some of the very worst places where you would think, oh, God will never save them. Whatever that instinct is, use Psalm 87 say, no, it's from those very places that God will bring to new life citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Pray with boldness. Think in your individual life. A great little takeaway. Think of the two or three most hardened Christians, non-Christians, the most hardened enemies of the cross in your life right now. Do you got them in your head? Two, three people, maybe a family member you just hung out with over Thanksgiving. Pray boldly that God would turn their hearts to the cross and preach to them the message of the cross. The mission of this church is to make disciples of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We should repent, full, true, heartfelt repentance, if we have any prejudice, any ethnocentrism. By the way, you all heard a little introduction about me. I was just curious. I was born in Johnson City, Tennessee, in the United States of America. How many of you, either you yourself were born in a foreign country, or your parents, so first or second generation immigrants to the United States. Would you mind just raising your hand? First or second generation. And if you do it high enough and people, you can look around. Just look. Thank you for the audience participation. My church was about half, which I'm very pleased and thankful for. That was easily 70, 80% of you, if I'm counting right. How awesome is it that this is not a church 
celebrating the United States of America. And no offense, I'm a proud American. I told you I was born in America. I'm an American citizen. I love being here. But how great is it to be, as our church name, an embassy of heaven, citizens of another kingdom, a city of God? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the city on a hill. Which is why our third M takeaway, the message, is a message of God's grace being extended to every tribe and tongue and language through the foolishness of the cross so that the mission of the church would be driven to church membership. Church membership should therefore be born again, regenerate requirements. I thought James did an excellent job at the very beginning of the announcements. I was like, we could just kind of insert that little text right into this point. If you are not a member of a church, then I would encourage you to find a church that values what this church values, which is called regenerate church membership. And regenerate's a big fancy word in some circles. You maybe have not heard of it. It just simply means being born again, where your heart is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every member of the church, a true church, is one who has turned from their sins, their rebellion against God, their enmity and enemy state with God and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And that should be the basis of church membership. Whether or not you have repented of sin and turned to put your faith and trust in Christ. And therefore, you can have confidence as you gather together that if you have been born from the mother of above, the Jerusalem that is in heaven, not just the Jerusalem that is here on the earth, then this gathering can be its own city of God here on the earth. You can pray together as members, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can exercise the keys of the kingdom from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 on the basis of the fact that you know the collective two or three or dozens more that are gathering together in the name of Jesus, knowing and loving Him, are in accordance by the power of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, as another takeaway, realize that membership in the local church is a maintaining of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that God created through His sovereign love. This church is not a gathering of Pastor James's best friends and most select people that he's gone around and recruited. At least, correct me if I'm wrong, James, I don't believe that this church is a gathering of those that James went around and went through the neighborhood and thought, all right, who's the most strategic, the most smart, the most beautiful? Let's get these people. Let's target a certain demographic. No, this church, as far as I understand it, is a church that comes together because of the gospel. It is centered around Jesus Christ, and the membership is all about maintaining unity. Did you notice that in Ephesians 4, if you study that passage, it doesn't say create unity amongst the diversity of the people around the world. The nations come into the city of God, and that unity needs to be maintained through spirit-filled, others-centered love. And since you all have raised your hand, I think you're probably well aware that when you come from different cultures, backgrounds, and nationalities, sometimes can be difficult to understand each other when English isn't your first language. It sometimes can be difficult when there's cultural issues at play. And that makes this city all the more brighter when those things aren't what unites us in the first place. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because of God's love that He has set on you, this church, this city on a hill. 
and shine brightly as you reflect and uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ as you are represented of dozens of different tribes and tongues all over the world. That, I believe, is why the church is the thing to give your life to. At the bare minimum, commit to covenant membership. And so, therefore, we have three simple takeaways in this second point. The message of the cross, the mission of the church, and local church membership are really unpacked as the very basics and heart of Psalm 87. Even though Psalm 87 isn't fulfilling all of these little details right in our text, all of the basic building blocks for those realities are right here in our psalm. And I would encourage you to believe the message, proclaim the message and mission, and uphold and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Third, and finally, we've talked about the people and the place. God loves a place. Surprisingly, it's a city on a small mountain. The people, strangely, they're citizens from all over the place. They're being counted. They're being registered. This is about a census being taken, and they're being born again, not from their country of origin. They're being born again into Mount Zion. But now, the closing, final, beautiful picture, verse 7. Singers and dancers alike, they say, all my springs are in you. All my springs are in you. God loves the place where all the peoples of the earth can receive the spring of His eternal presence. Each step along the way, I don't know if you've been tracking, there's been a little twist or turn a paradox, an ironic development in the story of the Bible. We went from a garden to a city for the place. We went from Adam and Eve and then the people of Israel to these conglomeration of enemy nations as being citizens in this place. Well, what about this third and final piece? Singers, pipe players is literally what the word dancers is. The springs are in you. In you, who's, who's the you? And I believe it's just the reference to what was established in verses 1 and 2, the city that God has chosen, the place of His dwelling, His holy presence. All my springs are in you, all of the life-giving water that would make life life, they're in this city. And since we've established that that city is not just located to a certain region on the earth, I think it's important for you to realize that the Bible has started its trajectory on page one and two of the Bible by creating a garden with a river, a spring, which would be the fountainhead for the rest of the world around it. Place, people, life-giving presence to the world around it. Now, that becomes the city of God here on earth. But before you can get to that conclusion in the new covenant era, you need to realize that it went through suffering. It went through Christ on the cross. And I get this from this string of texts. Psalm 87, verse 7, that we just read, parallels with only one other place where the phrase city of God in just that formula is used. 
Psalm 87 uses the phrase city of God. There's one other place in the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, that uses the phrase city of God. And it's Psalm 46, verses 4 to 7. I want you to just listen to this parallel, especially when you realize this is another Sons of Korah psalm that begins book 2. When we get to book 3, we're at the conclusion of book 3, and it's a Sons of Korah collection. Again, if you want more time for me to nerd out with you, I would love to nerd out with you about the collection of the psalms. But just listen to this link between the two places where city of God Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, which is the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations will rage and the kingdoms will totter and he will utter his voice and the earth will melt. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, say law. The river, the springs that Psalm 87, verse 7 is talking about, is about the city of God, the place of God's presence. God is in the midst of her, his holy habitation. So the river comes from a city. But as we keep reading in the Bible, and it's almost like the picture is blurry and then it gets sharper. Or you're taking that photo on your iPhone and you double-click it with your finger, a little double-click, and it zooms in. We zoom in, and we realize it's, it's not just a garden, it's a city. It's not just a mountain, it's a specific place on the mountain in the city. And Ezekiel 47 tells us in this beautiful vision that as Ezekiel was seeing the back door of a temple, He said there was water issuing below the threshold of this temple in this heavenly vision. This water was deep enough to swim in. It was a river that couldn't be walked through. And then he led me to the bank of the river. And as I went, I saw on the bank of the river trees on one side or the other. And wherever the river went, every living creature that swarmed lived with life. And there was many fish, for this water goes there, and that water and sea became fresh and everything that will live where the river goes, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. The leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be food and their leaves will heal. The book of Revelation tells us, if we take our phrase from Psalm 87, there is a spring in the city of God. And we double-click and we realize, just like Psalm 46, Ezekiel tells us that the source, the fountainhead of the river is the temple. But John, in his glorious conclusion of the entire Bible, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, encapsulates the city of God with the Garden of Eden, with the vision of Ezekiel 37. And I'll read these five verses and see if my promise to deliver on people, place, and presence, and how Psalm 87 really touches on the story of the whole Bible, doesn't all come crashing in. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was bright as crystal, and it was flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The angel showed me a river 
It was the water of life. It was bright as crystal. It was flowing from the throne of God. That's what Ezekiel saw. But John adds this, and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, there were trees, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month, and the leaves were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants, they will all worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord Almighty will be their light, and He will reign forever and ever. The access into the gates of the city that God loves, the source, the fountainhead, the place where the eternal presence will flow for every tribe, tongue, and nation is not just a city. It's not just a mountain. It's not just a temple. It's a lamb. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. Behold the lamb of God hanging on the cross. Naked, foolish, shamed, dying in the place of sinners. In my place condemned he stood. And as he did so, he cries out, I thirst. He quotes Psalm 31, another one of these psalms of lament and woe. The suffering of the Messiah would be the way in which the fountain of life would come as he's pierced in his side with a spear. Water comes gushing out. And although this might be a little too much, I think that might be a great place for you to locate the true source of the fountain of life. As water gushes out, we know that he's not only dead, dead, but as water gushes out, we know that there is life from the deepest darkness that has ever come over this earth. And it's through the lamb that was slain, as Jesus screamed and prayed, I thirst, you and I can drink of the living water. This is why when Jesus showed up to a well and there was a woman, a woman, women weren't prized like men were. She was a Samaritan woman, not a Jewish woman. And she had five husbands. She'd been sleeping around. They start having a conversation, and he says, it's not about this mountain, it's not about that mountain. Worship in spirit and truth, and there's a water that I can give, and you will thirst no more. This is the gospel. This is the good news for every single one of you in this room, no matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're old or young, whether you've done, you think, the most horrendous things that you could imagine possible, or you've been a pretty good person. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned and rebelled against the God who made a place for us. But in our rejection of this holy God, he banished us from that place and we built a city. We built cities of man, but God takes the cities of man and turns them into a city of God. And he did that precisely when he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins. Turn to him, trust in him. Be melted in your hearts by the beauty 
of one loving and sacrificing himself for you, not because you were worthy of it, but because he loves you. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do now bow our heads in humility, knowing that we are unworthy, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. There is no name that we can access this throne of grace with other than the holy name of Jesus. And so we pray that you would do what Jesus promised in John chapters 14 and 15 when he said that he would depart and leave so that he would send a helper, an advocate, the Holy Spirit of God. And it would be like water rushing from heaven down into the earth and being poured into our hearts. I pray that Psalm 87, this time of worship, would be the receiving of the gift of your holy presence, all channeled and funneled through the cross, and therefore landing on each and every member and attender of this church gathering. And my prayer is that they would be a conduit of your grace. I pray that New Covenant Baptist Church would not be a dead end, a cul-de-sac, a place for the pool of your living water to just sit and grow stagnant and stale, but it would become the source of life to the Montgomery County and the state of Maryland, and that it would spread to the ends of the earth through the prayers, the petitions, and the giving of this church as they seek to serve your name among all nations. I pray that there would not be a single member in this church who would ever be discouraged by the size, the number of members, with the buildings that they have to jump around to, but they would see that you prize and love even the gatherings of two or three in your name. I pray that there would be such encouragement that our love for one another is going to be a demonstration of your great, eternal, sovereign, electing love of us. And we pray that we would reflect that love to all of the various diverse members in this church. God, give us the Holy Spirit. Give us new life. Make us new kinds of people. Help us to be like Adam and Eve were supposed to be. Those who would submit wholly to your life-giving presence. Submit wholly to your word and your law. We thank you that Jesus did and that we are in him and we pray that we would look like him, imitate him, and make more disciples of him. In Jesus' name, amen.